Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Newscaster in every newspaper across the nation has made headlines out of it, and this afternoon we are honored indeed to have here in our studio this man, Kenneth Arnold, who we believe may be able to give us a first-hand account and give you the same on what happened. Kenneth, first of all, if you'll move up here to the microphone just a little closer, uh, we'll ask you uh, to just tell in your own fashion, as you told us last night in your hotel room and again this morning, uh, what you were doing there and how this entire thing started. Go ahead, Kenneth. Well, at about... Uh... 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington, en route to Yakima, and of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. That area is located at about, or <coughs> its elevation is about 10,000 foot, and I had made one sweep in close to Mount Rainier and down one of the canyons and was dragging it for any types of objects that might prove to be the marine ship. Uh... And as I come out uh, of the canyon there, it was about 15 minutes. I was approximately 25 to 28 miles from Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to 9,200 feet, and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, uh, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. I uh, at first uh, thought they were geese because it flew like geese, but it was going so fast that that uh, I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. Well, as the, as the planes come to the edge of Mount Rainier, flying at about 160 degrees south, uh, I uh, thought I would clock them because it was such a clear day, and uh, I didn't know where their destination was, but uh, due to the fact that I had Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams to clock them by, I just thought I'd see just how fast they were going, since among pilots we argue about speed so much. And... Uh, uh, they seemed to flip and flash in the sun just like a mirror. And, uh, in fact, I happened to be at an angle from the sun that seemed to hit the tops of these uh, peculiar-looking things in such a way that it, it almost blinded you when you when you looked at, at them through your plexiglass windshield. Well, uh, I uh, it was about one minute to three when uh, I, st- I started clocking them on my, uh, my sweet second-hand clock. And uh, as I kept looking at them, I kept looking for their tails. They didn't have any tails. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I, something's wrong with my eyes. And I turned the, the plane around and opens the window and looks out the window, and sure enough, I couldn't find any tails on them. And uh, the whole uh, observation of these particular ships didn't last more than about two and a half minutes, and I could see them only plainly when uh, they seemed to tip their wing or whatever it was, and the sun flashed on them. They looked something like uh, a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. Now, I thought, well, uh, that maybe they're jet planes with just the, pa- the tails painted green or brown or something, and didn't think too, too much of it, but kept on watching them. Uh, they didn't fly in a conventional formation that's taught in our army. They, uh, they seemed to kind of weave in and out right above the mountaintops. And uh, I would say that they even went down into the canyons in several instances, Oh, probably a hundred feet. But I could see them against uh, the snow, of course, on Mount Rainier, and against the snow on Mount Adams as they were flashing, and uh, against a high ridge that happens to lay in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams. But uh, when I observed the tail end of the last one...
Kenneth Arnold's sighting of those objects in June 1947 led the press to coin the term flying saucer, a description that would become an integral component in the study and definition of other such sightings of unidentified flying objects, which would itself evolve into what we now know as ufology. It was a defining moment in the cultural consciousness of Cold War era America, and from that point onwards, more and more people would report such sightings, as well as encounters with a wide range of unusual entities. My guest for this episode is Aaron Gullius, author of books such as Extraterrestrials and the American Zeitgeist and the Chaos Conundrum, as well as being the creator of the Saucer Life podcast, where he examines the folkloric aspects of the flying saucer phenomenon and explores the history and lore of ufology through the lens of individual stories of encounters, sightings, concepts and events. I think he's one of the most insightful voices exploring the history of ufology right now, and we had a really interesting conversation about his interest in this subject and the novel approach adopted in exploring its many fascinating characters. Now, in this episode, there are some slight issues with how I sound. I'm not sure what happened. I think it was just something that happened on the day of the recording. So apologies for that. Also, during the making of this episode, I've had a bit of a cold. So if I sound a bit bunged up right now, it's just because I had a cold. So apologies for that too. I know it's taken a while to get around to doing a ufology-themed episode of Some Other Sphere, but I like to think that with this, it's been worth the wait. Enjoy! Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Well, hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Ah, you're very welcome. So your podcast is called The Source of Life. To start off with, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what prompted you to, to start this podcast and, and why you called it The Source of Life. Well, um, I teach history. I'm a, I'm a history teacher at the college level, um, secondary education, and uh, I've always had an interest in, um, in, in UFO culture and conspiracy culture and related things. Did my work in graduate school on, on it, uh, written a book about, um, about contactees, UFO contactees and contactee culture. And so I was um, wanting to do some more research and some more work on the, the whole flying saucer world. And I, at the time, a couple years ago, when I when I started the podcast, I, I really didn't want to write another book. That seemed very very daunting, and and writing things like like blog posts seemed kind of I don't know, not really what I wanted to do. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe a maybe a podcast, but not a podcast with. Um, with guests or, or interviews or any of the things that that were were you know really getting to be um, you know, pretty pretty popular at the time, I, I was sort of thinking that uh, sort of a, more of an audio documentary kind of kind of podcast about about UFO culture would be would be interesting. And and initially, I was going to to just do sort of a contactee a week sort of thing, but then I realized that would get that would get very old. So I, I sort of came up with this this, this saucer life title, mostly because after extensive Googling, I was reasonably sure nobody had used it before. So that was the that was the biggest um, the, the biggest uh, thing for me was that I, I didn't want to you know there to be any any confusion in the marketplace as as trademark people say. But I, I sort of always envisioned it as um, sort of like Dan Carlin's hardcore, not for long and not and, and you know not coming out only once every six months and about flying saucers. So that's sort of where the the whole thing started. 
Cool. Yeah, um, I, I read on your website you describe um, how the stories is the is the key word with your podcast in terms of the in, in terms of what you talk about um, and the people you describe. Um, yeah, approaching it from a sort of as though it were folklore. Right. Yeah. I um I'm not interested necessarily in 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 you know here's this here's an interesting flying saucer story and now I'm going to tell you why it's not true and, and sort of the the debunking thing hmm. I think that has place and it's valuable especially if there are people out there you know ripping other people off or or defrauding them in some way but um, I, I think telling the story is is the most interesting part of it especially tracing stories trying to trace them back to as early to their beginnings as we can find them and then um and seeing how they develop over time we've done that uh a couple times on some some various stories and it's interesting to see how the the sort of tropes and and sort of stereotypical parts of one saucer theory or narrative or conspiracy theory change as the years go on because hmm. um, at the beginning of each episode in the intro, you, you mentioned there's like, no guests, preconceptions, snark, belief or debunking. And I, I really admire that you're able to, to do that because it, it, it must be difficult at times, I imagine. It, it is. And, uh, and, and some people have pointed out to me that there's, there's times where the, the no snark rule has, has gone by the wayside. But, but it, it, <laughs> it, it's, I, I sort of see it more as, a, more as a holistic thing. I'm not snarky about the about the topic as a whole there there are specific instances and and people within the topic that i think are are deserving of of some some sarcasm or some snark sometimes but overall you know just just trying to to present the stories as they are in a way that um that encourages people to to, to look into them further because i i try not to be too exhaustive sometimes because a lot of times what I find is is that trying to be encyclopedic on some of these topics leads to very, very long things that sound like an encyclopedia article. So when I'm when I'm writing these and, and recording them, I'm aware that there are some gaps and there are some things that could be fleshed out a little bit more, but I, I see those as ways to to keep the episodes to a reasonable length and also to encourage people to go find some uh, find out some more things for themselves yeah cool so um, in your very first episode you mentioned uh somebody called helen gizmandi who published a book um what made you choose just tell us a a little bit about her and what made you choose her as someone to talk about in that first episode well helen um helen is weird uh well they're all weird, but Helen is, <laughs> is, is, is particularly weird because she, she wrote this, um, this book and it's, it's got some kind of incredibly long title, like a, a saucer cited on this date and cited again on this date in another place and the horrible things that happened because of that. And it's this long sort of, I don't know, it looks like it should be a title from like the 16th century or something where books had incredibly long titles and she had a flying saucer sighting and um, some kind of UFO of some kind. And then she doesn't really talk about it very much. Um, Oh, I I brought it up here. Um, The, the title of the book is a UFO appears 
Um, a UFO appears in Pennsylvania, 1930. Many tragedies occur. The same UFO appears in Michigan, 1996. That's the title. The title is basically a summary of the book. And it's, it's very short, and she doesn't really talk about the flying saucer at all. What she talks about is every horrible thing that happened in her life, um, not even really connecting it to the saucers entirely much, but um, it's very strange. It seemed almost like like therapy. And I was I, I recorded that first one almost as a almost as a, a sort of pilot episode to see if I could actually make anything about this idea or this format work. And I, I'll be honest, much like the title of the show, the reason I picked it is because. This was a book that had been self-published by a relatively local author, and I was reasonably sure that nobody had ever done a podcast episode about it before. And because it would it would sort of stake out that territory of the show dealing with uh, dealing with stories that that you might not necessarily hear anywhere else, like this UFO story that had almost nothing to do with ufos yeah cool and, and, and i guess it sets a good example of what of what you're trying to do with the podcast as well it's it's very unusual isn't it her her, her story yeah it is and uh, i don't think i've read it since i uh since i you know was preparing for that that episode almost almost two years ago and it's it's a very sad book and it's very strange because she talks a lot about about the the many tragedies that occur and, and people who died and, and people who've left and and being mistreated by husbands and it's very very grim and it, it really does sort of strike me as 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 almost a a therapeutic thing she was doing trying to write this down and trying to make some sense of all these sad things that had happened in her life and she sort of traces it to. You know, all these things sort of occurred between 1930 when I saw this weird thing and, and 1996 when I saw this this other sort of weird thing. And, and the two UFO things or UFO encounters she had, they weren't really the same. They weren't really identical encounters. They, they, they sort of bookend her story in a, in, a, in a weird sort of way. But um, it really seems like she was trying to, to construct some sort of explanation for why she thought the things that had gone wrong in her life and in the lives of people she knew, why those things happened. Hmm. It sounds almost, you could, you could imagine somebody writing something similar, but it was a, a sighting of the Virgin Mary or something. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a, I think this, this story is, is that, yeah, it's a, it's a really good example of how, um, of how strange events, be they, you know, Marian apparitions or UFOs, can all sort of be used to um, to provide sort of metaphysical signposts to sort of help us navigate the world in which we uh, in which we live. And and, and some people um, read more into those strange things than others. But uh, yeah, it's very much in the vein of of those sort of Marian apparitions followed by, you know, good or bad things in somebody's life or, or, you know, sightings of, of, you know, little people or, or the Fae or, or who, leprechauns or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the next episode, you talk about Albert Bender, who, who's um, in, in terms of ufology as a phenomenon, he, he was, there in the very early days of that, wasn't he, in the 1950s? 
Yes, Al Bender. I sort of I sort of went from that first episode to the second episode from um you know a a a very unknown a completely unknown story to you know dealing with the men in black so i sort of went from (laughs) some zero to a hundred right there in a week but um again i uh i I decided that uh that that, you know the men in black a, a lot of times when people talk about the men in black or think about the men in black in ufology the source they go back to first is usually just in my experience and especially back in the 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 80s and 90s when when i started getting into this stuff people went back to john keel's uh mothman prophecies because there was a huge most of the men in black stories that are those men in black stories that everybody knows about the guy named tiny with the wire in his leg and and that sort of thing those are from the mothman prophecies and when other people wrote about the men in black you'd you'd have you know, writers like Jim Keith and his case book on the men in black. And a lot of his stories came from, from John Keel's stuff, but the Al Bender story um, and Gray Barker's chronicling and, and sort of, you know, probably fictionalization of the Al Bender story in um, his 1954 uh, book, they knew too much about flying saucers, really, which is the best title ever. And it's a, it's a great book. I, um, it's one of those UFO books that I that I go back and, and reread on a regular basis just because it's it's so fun and everything is just sort of it's still kind of new at that point. We aren't as uh, we aren't reading it along like, oh, it's going to be a men in black story. But because that sort of thing didn't exist yet. But Al Bender ran uh, an organization called the International Flying Saucer Bureau, and it was a, a large organization, one of the, the first sort of sort of ambitious national organizations to investigate flying saucers that appeared. And one day, just to, to sort of keep the story concise, one day uh, Bender in the, the newsletter, um, Space Review, yes, Space Review is what the newsletter was called. Set, Brilliant. The, 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 the letterhead <laughs> says, Space Review reviews space. That was sort of their, their tagline. <laughs> it's just the most... The well, most, it, it works, I guess. It's adorable. <laughs> you know, it's, it's adorable. But um, in an issue of Space Review, Al Bender sa- said that, you know, the, the mystery of the flying saucers um, has been solved. We'll have full information next issue. And then the next issue, there was a, a, a special warning Um you know, we can't reveal what it is. We adv- in the famous line, we advise those engaged in saucer research to please be very, ca- very cautious. And so, Gray Barker, who was also a saucer publisher at the time and the the head of the Department of Investigation for the International Flying Saucer Bureau, he um, and some other friends try to figure out what's going on with Bender. What does he know? Does he know anything? Is he is he putting everybody on? Is this a hoax? What is it? And it, what comes out is is Bender um, Bender was 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 asked or or forcibly encouraged by some men dressed in official looking black clothes to not uh, not talk about the saucers anymore, and uh, because he had gotten too close to the truth, and so the Men in Black this this idea you know would would continue that that people are are being intimidated by whether it's the government whether it's by a different group of aliens whether it's by some other organization um this sort of 
it, it, it's a meme, right? It's a, sort of a viral idea. It just keeps sort mm-hmm. of showing up and, and getting reused. And later, Bender would um, would write a book called uh, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, where he tells his story. And it's 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 completely it's basically a science fiction novel. It's it's hilarious. He 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 gets contacted telepathically. They visit him. They take them to their secret base in Antarctica. They fly him to the planet Kaik, which is spelled K-A-Z-I-K, but pronounced Kaik. In that episode of the podcast, I have some audio from 1967 of Bender talking about uh, about his um, his encounters on the planet Kaik. And then Bender just sort of, sort of disappears from the saucer scene altogether and um, goes on and, and has a, is able to find himself a regular life where he doesn't have to, to do the UFO convention circuit for the rest of, you know, the rest of his days and um, just sort of, just sort of vanishes. He died just, uh, just a few years ago, not very long ago at all. Um, and, uh, it's just a fascinating story because he, you know, there's some, there's some letters, there's some documentation where, where he and, and some other saucer writers are, are sort of writing letters back and forth, arguing about who should get to tell the story, the Bender story called it. You have Bender himself referring to it in the third person as the Bender story. Uh, and, and it's, it's very strange. It's, it's almost, I'm not going to accuse anybody of making something up, but I think somebody might've been making something up. Um, whether it was because Bender just wanted to get out of the saucer field in a dramatic way or, or what, but in doing what he did, how he did it, he launched this, this idea and this sort of genre of paranormal story that, uh, that survives, you know, survives still. Yeah. When I was listening to that episode, you, you talk a little bit about, um, Albert Bender kind of prior to, to this happening in his life. And he, he seems like a, an interesting guy. He's, he just seems like a sort of, um, just an imaginative person. He, he turned the up, is it, he turned the upper floor of the house he shared with his stepfather into a sort of haunted house. I, I found that interesting. Yeah. He, he was, he, he had a deep love of, of horror films and the horror genre and, and turned that upper floor into a, a, a house of horrors. I think that was the phrase he used. It was written up in the local newspaper. And the, the newspaper write-up made Bender seem really, really strange. There was one, um, there was one quote where, where he talks about how when he was in the Air Force during World War II, he got to see a dead body. And, and I think the line was, that was a real kick or something <laughs> like that. This sort of very, very sort of, sort of, you know, you know, you know, you know, tough beatnik style. I saw saw a dead body, man. It was a real kick. You know, just that sort of thing. But he he comes off as as just a weird, creepy little guy, and and he 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 wasn't. Uh, he he really everything else makes him seem, you know, very rel- relatively normal with a with a few little quirks. Um, Gray Barker's book makes Bender sound like a a very driven sort of um sort of a go-getter who was going to solve the flying saucer mystery and that's why it's so mysterious when he suddenly backed out um but uh, but really he was just a a guy who 
you know, lived with his stepdad and worked uh, worked an office job at a scissors factory. And um, then once the flying saucer thing stopped being a thing, he got married and moved out to California and I think ran a motel for a long time before doing some other stuff. So he, he was a strange guy, but um, different sources make him sound either more strange or less strange with that, uh, that newspaper story, that local Connecticut newspaper story, making him sound like somebody you would not want to hang around with because he's a weirdo. But um, that might have been exaggerated a, a little bit. But when he talks in his own book about, you know, inviting people from work uh, to his house of horrors and then getting uh, getting a real uh, a real charge out of out of them being scared, he he might be a weirdo. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sort of sort of makes you wonder. Yeah, I, I would agree that. I mean, at the time in in the fifties, what were Flying saucers and UFOs, I mean, were they making headlines on a broader scale in, in sort of town and national newspapers? Yes, they were, in the, uh, especially in the, the early 50s. The, the, the first saucer sighting of the modern era was uh, in 1947. A mm. guy named Kenneth Arnold sees some in the Pacific Northwest. You've got the, um, the, the brief blip of the Roswell thing that really wasn't a big deal until it was dredged up and investigated in the 1970s and 80s. But you had huge numbers of sightings. And, and 1952 was one of the biggest years for sightings on record. And the government, the U.S. Air Force, was looking into these things very seriously in, 19, uh, in 1947. As, as, as soon as it began, they, they initiated some projects. In, in 1948, there was Project Sign, followed by Project Grudge, followed by Project Blue Book to investigate these sightings and, and determine whether or not whatever people were seeing in the skies was um, whether or not it was a threat to national security. And in the popular media, you had articles in newspapers, you had stories in major magazines um, here in the States like, um, like Life Magazine and uh, the Saturday Evening Post and other magazines that were were just about as mainstream as it was possible to get. So flying saucers definitely had had burst on the scene uh, by the early 1950s in a major way. Right. And so when you were doing your podcast and researching the stories of these people who had, had contactee experiences, do you think, in, in the 50s anyway, it was an era in which people were, were primed to have these experiences, not to say they didn't happen, but but in terms of a, I mean, you you've written a book called the about this sort of zeitgeist. Do you, do you think that in the fifties this this sort of zeitgeist was particularly strong? I, I think in the fifties what you have is a a readiness for people to to tell stories in ways that appealed to things people found popular. So the, the flying saucer contactees generally and, and and this is a huge sort of um sort of generalization they generally after meeting with their alien space brothers had messages of um sort of reform uh, the need to seek peace the need to move away from from warfare and greed and selfishness and nationalism and um some some historians have have pointed this and said, well, the contactee thing was an, and the UFO thing in general was an example of 
sort of nuclear anxiety and Cold War anxiety. But if you look at people like um, George Adamski, sort of the, the stereotypical contactee, hmm. he was saying much of the same thing uh, about the need for spiritual renewal, the dangers of warfare. Um, he was saying these things before the flying saucer craze began, even as far back as the 1930s, he was doing weird sort of organizing weird sort of spiritualist groups that he was the guru of. For contactees like Adamski, what the flying saucer part of it does is it gives them a way to get their message out to an audience that is is honestly, at the time, pretty eager for flying saucer stories. So it's a way to to promote their pre-existing, uh, their pre-existing uh, spiritual and uh, political ideologies and agendas. Now, other contactees, um, guys like like Truman Bethram, for example, or George Van Tassel, they didn't necessarily have any, you know, established track record of having any philosophy about anything one way or the other. So sometimes we can look at. at, at the contactees and say, well, they were always sort of into this stuff and they added flying saucers to it like Adamski did. Or you have contactees who just sort of arrive on the scene and see that people like Adamski are selling books and getting speaking engagements and getting some sort of reputation or, or monetary benefit from this. And so they, to be very, very charitable, they see it as a good time to tell their story of their very, very absolutely true flying saucer encounter. Or, you know, less charitably, they see it as a way to jump on the bandwagon and make up a flying saucer story. A lot of times people ask me if I think the con that contactees actually talked to space people. And I, I don't think most of them did. Mm -hmm. I think some of them probably did have some kind of experience that they couldn't explain. And so the flying saucer contactee um, story became a way for them to sort of frame their encounter in a way that made sense to them and would make sense to other people. But especially with people like, like Adamski, there's extensive, extensive debunking done on his photographs and on many of the details of his stories. And, and a lot of the other contactees, their stories you, you don't really want to say that something is is too silly to be debunked, but some of these stories are, are too silly to be debunked. And and those are the best kind, I find, because it, it sort of gives you a an idea of what the range is of what contactees thought the public would accept, right? Um, can I go out there with this story about, you know, the, the flying saucer lady with a, with a little cap who came down and took me for a ride in the saucer, and she's <laughs> from a planet called Clarion, and then turns out his wife gets very angry at him. So, you know, for having an affair with a, a space woman or something like that. So the, the, the stories are of uh, varying degrees of credibility, but in most cases, they, they do have some very interesting things to say about the politics of the time, especially in terms of geopolitics and international relations of the Cold War. Hmm. And I suppose... These kind of stories, they would be stories that you might get in magazines like Astounding Stories or Weird Tales in relation to the sort of encounters that, that humans would have with aliens. 
Yeah, um, fate was uh, was one of the really right, yeah. big ones uh, for that. And what, what's interesting is is in in magazines like uh, like Amazing Stories and Astounding Tales and those sort of uh, sort of nineteen thirties forties sort of science fiction um, magazines is is there was a huge sort of pushback against any sort of story that purported to be true. Those you know, the editors and read a lot of fans said these magazines are for fiction, not for fact, and, and mm. not for your your weird pretend stories. And um, amazing stories got into trouble with that back in the '40s with the Richard Shaver stuff. Uh, Shaver claimed to have discovered an underground civilization of people um, called the Deros, the evil Deros, who were causing havoc on the surface. And he he wrote these incredibly long. Um, incredibly long stories about his uh, his encounters with the Deros and also, you know, about the deep history of planet Earth that has been revealed to him. And um, these stories were were sort of heavily sort of adventure fiction type of stories. Shaver claimed they were they were for the most part true, but the editor, um, a guy named Ray Palmer, who also started up Fate and other flying saucer magazines he rewrote uh, a lot of it and added a lot but uh, the shaver stuff which purported to be true caused kind of an uproar in uh, in amazing stories back in the 1940s and there were some flying saucer crossovers with uh, with palmer and uh, shaver shaver claimed that that some of the flying saucers people were seeing were actually from the inner earth rather than being from outer space so mm. yeah th- but people People would read these stories in in newsstand magazines like Fate, but also in a lot of um, self-published pamphlets that you could buy from the back of these magazines. You'd you'd send away for a catalog of all the stuff that Gray Barker published out of Saucerian Publications in West Virginia, and you could buy all the contact ebooks you want. And there were a lot of smaller, more amateurish newsletters and magazines that were being published around the time as well. Uh, that um, that are really fun to read. Yeah, you have a couple of episodes about the that you call the zine scene, which I, I found very entertaining. It, it made me think. I imagine those people, if they were around today, like doing podcasts or something. It seems it seemed kind of like that in a way. But I mean, there were rivalries and things, weren't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there there were, and especially in the 1950s. Uh, and and some of the rivalries back in the 50s were. Um, were, were made up. Um, it was like pro wrestling. It was like a, you know, it's like okay, we're gonna we're gonna fight, and, and you know, people will buy all, both of our magazines to see each side of the fight, right? So Gray Barker and um, his friend Jim Mosley, who uh, eventually would do Saucer Smear, a newsletter that ran up until the 21st century when uh, when when Jim died, they would often, you know, especially in the 50s and 60s, present present themselves as as very sort of vicious vicious rivals. But there were also rivalries that came through in these magazines between organizations that had different sort of approaches to the UFO um, enigma. Uh, NICAP, uh, the, the National Investigations Committee on Aer- Aerial Phenomenon, um, took a very sort of, we are cataloging all the reports of lights in the sky and eventually we will put enough pressure on the Air Force to reveal the truth. That was sort of their their angle. And uh, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, was a lot more open to things beyond, you know, craft in the skies. They uh, they 
cataloged a lot of the so-called um, humanoid encounters that you would see in the 1950s and, and onward, where people would have encounters with strange beings, not contactees, where stories where the Space Brothers, you know, share their wisdom from beyond, but but things like strange hairy dwarfs and uh, and elf-like creatures and strange robotic creatures. Apro was much more open to this, and so Nycap would take shots at Apro, and Apro would take shots at Nycap for each, you know, not doing it right. And it really does. Um, there's at, at some point um, somebody's going to be clever enough or or bored enough to come up with some fake sort of APRO or NICAP or other like 50s and 60s UFO Twitter accounts and just tweet as if they were these people and get into these little spats. I think it would be hilarious if somebody tried to, to translate the world of, of 50s ufology to modern social media because it, it would it would come across. A lot like the podcasting world, but I think even more so like the uh, like at the height. I can't believe how quickly time moves on, but the height of the paranormal blogging scene, maybe ten or ten or fifteen years ago, when everything was sort of moving online, and you had these sort of running commentaries about things and people fighting in the comments of various blog posts and things like that. Things you see now on social media, but but paragraphs in length because there weren't any character limits. Um, the early zines, especially in the 50s, were a lot like that. Hmm. So what, do you, what was the um, attitude like of the people, the, the, the people who were interested in, in UFOs? What was their attitude to the government at the time? Because at the moment, the, the whole issue of disclosure is, is quite um, big because with this whole sort of To the Stars Academy organization. <laughs> yeah. Which, which which seems to be wanting to issue forth disclosure in some way. I'm not sure that that's the case, really. But in the 50s, what was the relationship between um, uh, people interested in flying sources and and the government? Well, in, in general, there was a lot of there was a lot of mistrust. Uh, the the NICAP mm -hmm. organization I mentioned a bit ago, they were sort of leading the charge in. Um, accusing the Air Force, especially the Air Force, um, of hiding information about UFOs. The Air Force would say, we are not investigating UFOs, we don't care. And we know now from things that have been declassified, <coughs> excuse me, that they did have Project Sign and Project Grudge, uh, I was going to say Grunge, Project Grudge. Um, they were looking at these things. Uh, Project Blue Book was a more public um, effort, but before Blue Book begins, Sign and Grudge in, in, in 48 and 49 were, uh, were sort of going on secretly while the Air Force is saying, we have no interest, you know, we're not concerned. So NICAP was convinced the government was not telling everything that it knew. Um, other organizations and other researchers were generally in agreement on that that the government knew more than they were letting on. At the very least, the government was more interested than they pretended to be. There were some, though. Um, Gray Barker uh, was one who was sort of, you know, ambivalent or, yeah, ambivalent's the best word about, about the government role. Jim Mosley was a little ambivalent. By the time we get to the late 60s and the 70s, uh, John, I think I think it was John Keel um, took the, uh, took the, the, whole idea that the government is not sharing information 
about flying saucers thing and, and turned it on its head and said, the, um, the, the UFO research community is not telling the government what it knows about flying saucers. Um, sort of reversed <laughs> it and, and, and sort of explained that in his view, the government probably doesn't know anything that civilian research organizations know. Because actually, you know, the government probably has fewer resources dedicated just to cataloging sightings than individuals do. And so one of the things individual like dedicated saucer organizations. So one of the things that um, NICAP was pushing for was for open an, an open hearing and investigation on the flying saucer question. And they finally got it in 1969. It was called the Condon Committee. It was really the, the University of Colorado study on UFOs, but uh, Edward Condon was in charge of it. And and for, for a, a tiny little bit there, there was some hope in the saucer world that finally this was being taken seriously by scientists and everything would be fine and, and they'd, we'd, we'd get we'd get what today we might call disclosure. But then the, uh, the Condon Committee issued the report and said, well, the vast majority of these cases are natural phenomenon or otherwise explainable. Our recommendation is that the government not waste any more time looking into the flying saucer question. So Project Blue Book shuts down and the government supposedly, you know, gets out of the flying saucer business. Now we know that the Air Force is always going to be interested in what's in the air. So it makes sense that there are efforts to keep track of those things. But um, that was sort of the last big time when when there was some some hope that, you know, there's going to be a big government project to clear all this up. The stuff that's going on now is, in a lot of ways, some echoes of what we've had before. We have this Defense Department Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program that's being talked about. It, it's it's just the Air Force looking at things in the air. It, it's not necessarily that these are alien things. They didn't tell us about it. It was a secret program because governments keep things secret. Um, I think a lot of the news stories that have been appearing in the last uh, in the last couple weeks um, are mostly rehashing what the story was that came out in 2017. I, I think that uh, one thing people need to really be careful of is are any of the people doing the reporting on these things subsequently appearing in TV shows about the things as some sort of expert, and do they disclose that in their reporting? There's been some examples of that. Um, the UFO scene is uh, is a circus. And it's not necessarily all bad, and it's not necessarily dishonest in any way. But um, but there's a, a showbiz aspect to a lot of this. And I think a lot of people are looking at the showbiz aspect and are thinking that it's, it's going to be some kind of actual revelation of some kind of cosmic truth. And uh, I'm not sure it is. No, I mean, I'd agree. It, it's interesting um, to look at uh, over time where aliens uh, are reported as, as coming from, because it seems like early on it, they're either from planets with names that, and we don't really know where they are, or they're quite close. They're, they're Venus or, or Saturn or somewhere like that. And then I suppose after, after the Betty and Barney Hill case and where she gets that star map, it seems after that, then more names seem to be given to places further away in, in space relative to where these these aliens are coming from. And then more recently, I think it's going to go in the other way again. We're, we're talking about, you know, 
perhaps these these craft aren't from outer space at all. Perhaps they're from you know a breakaway civilization or all the hollow earth. I mean that that seems to be coming back a little bit. It's it's interesting how how that can change over time, and certain events seem to sort of move the the field in, in different directions. I mean the the idea of a grave, I would say, really comes from communion with, with by Whitley Strieber, and it, it's, it's funny how these cultural events sort of in, inform ufology, don't they? It's it's a very much a ufology is very much a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it, it's, especially with, with the greys, it's very much a, a chicken and the egg thing because the, the abduction experience that Streber writes about in Communion is very similar to what we see with, with Betty and Barney Hill and, and, mm. and some other other things we see in, 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 in the 70s as well. But that image of the, the big-eyed grey with, with no nose and the, 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 the little slit for a mouth that's on the cover, I mean, that just, I mean, the speed with which that image becomes you know the default mm. alien in people's mind is is just amazing and and it's also amazing the degree to which the abduction phenomenon in in the 1980s and, and 90s pushed almost every other aspect of ufology out to the margins i mean you you didn't hear about weird little hairy dwarfs or, or odd little robots anymore um you didn't hear as, well, you, you still had some contactees out there, but they're mostly just talking to a very distinct group of people who are mostly into to channeling and, and, and sort of channeled spiritualist messages and things like that. Mainstream ufology just sort of hopped on the abduction thing and and really didn't get off until fairly recently when we, we've had some more stuff like the the secret space program thing and the breakaway civilization thing and um, especially the more sort of rational approaches to that that you see um, from um, from writers like um, like a, I, I'm a pal of Walter Bosley and I think his hmm. stuff is really interesting the sort of blue avian style stuff is, is a little that I think that's its own thing. Um, I'm not sure what category I'd put that in, but, uh, you got, but you got the secret space program, breakaway civilization stuff. You've got some hollow earth stuff. You've got a, a sort of resurgence of what we saw back in the seventies with people like Jacques Vallée and John Keel of, um, researchers wanting to sort of break down these barriers between these different sort of silos of paranormal investigation with, with you've got your ghosts over here and you've got your flying saucers over here and please do not get your ghosts on my flying saucers or, or don't, uh, don't get my Sasquatch messed up with your aliens because these are different things. I think there's some researchers who are taking all of these weird experiences um, and, and taking, um, taking things like various uh, occultic phenomenon and uh, and making a, a really nice sort of hearty stew of weirdness. Um, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the Hellier miniseries yes, that, uh, that was released online. And I, I think that's um, I think that's a sort of indication of I, I hesitate to be so bold as to call it the the new paranormal because it's not really that new, but it, it's it's a it's a direction I would like to see things go back into um, because honestly. That kind of stuff, to me personally, is way more interesting than, you know, here's a little dot on a screen. It's moving like no plane can move. It must be an alien. Um, I, I don't find that very interesting. But 
when you get people's encounters in there and talking to the witnesses and, and, and talking to people who experience these strange things and who investigate these strange things, I think that's where we get some really good stuff. And, and so I think we're finally coming out of, of, of like you said, that, that period where the, the culture was sort of dominated by, by that image from that book cover and, and the abduction thing that, that went along with it. And we're, we're opening things up a little bit more. Um, more people need to read uh, Passport to Magonia, where Jacques Vallée talks about the overlap between folklore and, um, and, and the UFO phenomenon and other paranormal phenomenon. I think that's a, a sort of foundational book for understanding um, some of this weirdness. And uh, it's good to see that um, it, with, with programs like Hellier, that, uh, that that comes back a little bit. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Helia. Um, I, I thought it was it was a novel approach to investigating the paranormal. I there are some points in it the first time I watched it where I was where I was thinking to myself, well, that's a bit unusual that they're doing that. But then I thought, well, well, why not? Why why not do a tarot reading to see what what might lie ahead in terms of your investigation, and why not use a ghost hunting method to look for goblins in Kentucky? You know, I mean, it's worth a shot, isn't it? It's it's a, a kind of a holistic approach, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way to put it. And I, yeah, it, it, it's sort of when I first watched it, I I had the same the same sort of thing. I was like, oh no, a ghost box. Oh, what are they doing? But it, it worked really well. And mm. I, I think um, I, I think the the, the tarot reading, I, I sort of in in my mind, you see, I, I sort of see there's the there's there's the tarot reading approach, and then there's you know something that is that is almost you know just as as sort of potentially hit or miss um but is is you know disguised as science with the the regression hypnosis that they would do during abductions where you, you'd listen to these these interviews of, of some of these abduction hypno hypnotists and you can clearly tell they're they're leading the hypnotized person yes. directly to where they want to go how is that any more scientific than a tarot card reading i'm not saying a tarot mm. card reading is scientific but Neither is, you know, shoddy hypnotism. And it's probably much less, you know, harmful to somebody's psyche. Um, probably. But uh, yeah, I think that that holistic approach is is really, really good. And what I liked about it is, and if listeners have not seen it, you know, check it out because it's free. Um, and it's good. Not, <laughs> not, don't just check it out because it's free. Check it out because it's good. And, and don't let the idea of cost deter you because it's free. What I liked is there, <laughs> there was no, end, there was no end point. It, it sort of ends on a cliffhanger. Yes. And hopefully there's going to be, I think there's going to be more in the future, but you could tell even as they were doing it. And, and this was, I thought this was very good. The, they didn't have any more idea of where all of this was going than we did mm. as the viewers. And I really liked that. I thought that was a nice approach um, to, to doing a documentary. It, it felt a little more organic, um, acknowledging that, you know, it is still an edited, you know, constructed product. We're, we're not, you know, experiencing every second of every day as they did. But um, it, it was it was so much fun to watch. And it was creepy uh, in, in it was just the right amount of creepy without the creepiness being um sort of forced. I, I thought it was really good. And I, I really, really can't wait for there to be more. Yeah, me too. 
you're right. It, it was it was very well shot, and the music's really good. But it also, I think, it just has some really great stuff in it. Um, there's an episode where they go into the the town. Well, Helia's sort of like a. It's not really a town, is it? It's sort of like um, it's a collection of buildings. I don't think it has a town hall and stuff, does it? It's no, it, it's it's very small. Yeah, it's like an old yeah. mining town, I think, and the mine's not there anymore. But right. um, but they go into the the town um <laughs> even though i just said it's not a town sorry <laughs> and um and they start talking to people and, and one of them says oh yeah last year there was just a big ufo in the sky for a few hours that hung there and then it and i was like that's that's amazing and, and the local news reported it <laughs> but it didn't it, it just it didn't make national news or anything it's it's it, i did that just really struck me as as kind of as amazing really because the, the, that kind of thing whatever it was didn't get wider attention yeah it was it was I, I was i was surprised as well because it was you know sort of this this sort of very noticeable event that that just did not get uh, did not get picked up and probably because you know hellier is uh it's uh it, it's a tiny little non-town mm. it's uh it's uh i remember I, I looked it up and i was i was trying to remember while you were mentioning that i was trying to remember and um it was actually named after the guy who owned the coal company that ran the town so it's it's basically one of these towns that was it was it wasn't a town where somebody discovered coal it was a town that was created to house coal miners and Mm. now there's no there's no there's no coal mine right so it's a tiny little place you know out in the hills of eastern kentucky and so you know, if something like that could happen and not get re- sighting like that, could sightings plural like that could happen and not get reported, what else is happening in places that aren't considered to be important enough to pay attention to that we might be missing, and that people who are in the area just sort of see it as you know, well, yeah, that happens around here once in a while. We've got the giant light in the sky hovering over or whatever. Um, it, it sort of gives us an idea of how big and how strange uh, this world actually is. Um, that uh, that there might, actually that there might be things on this earth that are so strange that uh, we don't necessarily have to go too much beyond our planet to find uh, to find things to, to occupy us. Yeah, that's something. That's a, that's a really good point. I, when, when it comes to what I find really interesting, I have to admit is things like antarctica or the hollow earth and i mean i'm just really interested in those ideas i'm 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 not sure what credence there might be to them but there's there seems to be a lot of interest in those areas a little bit like what we were talking about earlier and and part of me thinks that well antarctica is a very it's a very in terms of a story it's a great place to set a story you know we had we've had films like the thing from another world which became the thing I think the I think the X Files has done an episode. It's set in Antarctica or in the frozen north, yeah. somewhere frozen anyway. Um, and whilst I'm not I'm not saying that that means that when people talk about the idea of something being in Antarctica, it's wrong. It's just I find myself thinking that there seems to be a connection between. There's a fame, There's a phrase saying um, life imitating art. Mm-hmm. If you see yeah. what I mean. Sorry, I was getting my wires <laughs> crossed there. But I mean, what do you think about Antarctica and and, and, uf- and ufology's relation to to that area? The great thing about Antarctica is that it's so big and so empty and so 
you know, sort of underpopulated, except for, you know, research stations that you could say almost anything about Antarctica. Mm. And who's going to prove you wrong? Uh, because what, you're going to go there? Um, so Antarctica <laughs> had a, a, you know, and, and the North Pole as well, has had a, a sort of relationship to ufology since, uh, since the very beginning. Very early on, we had stories about um, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd, the you know, polar explorer, Admiral Richard Byrd, um, flying his plane into a hole at the top of the North Pole and, and you know, encountering the inner Earth. There were stories uh, that, um, you know, sort of not UFO related stories, but but kind of, as, as, as we'll see in a second, of, you know, a, a secret army of Nazis, you know, holding up in Antarctica and uh, the, the U.S. Army and Navy having to go, you know, defeat them in the late 1940s or early 1950s, um, Nazi flying saucer bases in Antarctica um, as well. And, you know, Albert Bender's book, uh, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, the, uh, the aliens from, from Kayak have a secret base in Antarctica just because it's a, it's a big place that's, you know, solid land, at least for now, and, um, you know, that nobody's populating. So you can say all kinds of stuff about it. it and sort of, you know, the, the X-Files, you know, they, they had a, I think the, the one episode, it was in the Northern Arctic. Yes. And then in the, in the first movie, I think they were at the South Pole. Right. If I'm remembering correctly. Um, one of the great things about, about the, about Antarctica from a, a sort of television or, or, or film point of view, I think, is that it's probably the most accessible alien-like environment we can have on the Earth. Um, deserts, not really. Um, deep, deep oceans are probably even more alien mm. than Antarctica, but we can't really do much down there. I don't think we can do a huge amount of filming. But Antarctica, you could set a story in Antarctica and, you know, approximate an alien planet, right? Because it's it's just such um, an environment that is inhospitable to, uh, to to human life for long periods of time. So, I think there's this there's this idea, or the, the, maybe there's this idea that Antarctica is is sort of a a surrogate for an alien planet. Um, that you know, for story purposes, it would work like that. Um, and as far as you know, secret scary things happening in Antarctica, it's far enough away that nobody could uh, could easily disprove it or check up on it. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great answer. I mean, I, I suppose one thing I'm wondering is with ideas like that, do you think it's possible for that area of ufology or that that area of interest in in paranormal circles anyway? How does do ideas like that become more legitimate in the mainstream, or or is the is the role of these subjects to sort of always be slightly unusual and, and 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 never really become accepted is that where their power lies in a way to to be other i think i think so i i think yeah i think the paranormal and and ufology ufology to a degree especially the more weird paranormalish aspects of the of ufology um occult stuff even you know standard religion um religious doctrines and beliefs and, and, and communities. I, I think they um, they function best when they don't allow themselves to get co-opted by the mainstream. Mm. 
because I, I think a lot of time that's that's what the danger is not not so much like oh my gosh now they're going to accept our ideas for what they are because we've persuaded them that we're right it's going to be in order to get some bandwidth or some some space in the media to talk about our ideas we're going to have to change them water them down simplify them make them more acceptable and you know i think there's a danger of of losing um losing you know the the authenticity uh to some of those experiences um, for example almost any ufo documentary that uh, has ever aired on television about any topic has you know you have to take it and you have to you have to make it fit in the documentary format um, and, and that means leaving things out. That means simplifying things. Um, that means taking out a lot of the ambiguity. When you look at episodes of the X-Files that have dealt with um, UFO or occult subjects and you show that episode to somebody who is an expert in that, that case or that you know, paranormal phenomenon or, or whatever it is, a lot of times they get kind of irritated. It's like, well, they did not represent this well at all. Right. They, they, they didn't do this. They didn't do that. They didn't talk about this. They didn't talk about all of these other things. And so for that mainstream exposure and acceptance, there's a trade off. And that trade off is it's going to be simplified. It's going to be demystified. It's going to have some of the I think some of the fun taken out of it in some cases. Um, I think some of these things work well as a sort of off-center counterpoint to the mainstream, hmm. um, I, I, I think. And, and ufology is, is weird enough that, uh, you know, it works within the sort of scientific context of, you know, is there life on other planets and are they visiting us? All the way through to, you know, this is some sort of other strange phenomenon that has nothing to do with literal aliens. I think there's a place for the, the mainstream and sort of the rational world's acceptance of it but for the truly bizarre stuff um i, I think I, I think the mainstream what we call the mainstream would want to make it fit into a neat little box and this stuff does not fit into neat little boxes yeah i mean i, I guess another place that it these ideas can exist is in is in fiction isn't it in stories because i mean i went to see the new godzilla film a couple of days ago, and that mentions that whole universe features the concept of a hollow earth, and um, and obviously, of course, it also features gigantic monsters. But it's interesting that, but that idea is is in there and has been included because I don't. Oh, yeah. I, that was never that was never something that they had in the Japanese films. I I don't believe. So I it was it was interesting to to see that concept in a in a big movie actually and actually it was first mentioned in the skull island movie so so sometimes i think it might be the, the best place for these ideas to exist sometimes can be in fiction in books and in films and in tv series because i suppose the audience the the viewer doesn't have to accept it as true they can just see it as entertainment but somebody <laughs> who is interested in those ideas can go ah Ah well, <laughs> well you know actually there's quite a lot of um, there's quite a lot of books on Hollow Earth and I, I have to admit I, I talk to my friends about Hollow Earth quite a lot. I, I don't bore them with it. I just whenever it, it sort of comes up, I'll then talk about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's interesting that it that it comes up in uh, in in New Godzilla movie because because it, it's sort of one of those things where the original you know those original movies had a very heavy overtone of 
you know, the, the aftermath of World War II and the atomic radiation and, and yeah. the effects of that and, and sort of had that little bit of, of contemporary, you know, culture and life put into it. And that context doesn't work as well now. So although they could have used the Fukushima um, reactor meltdown, that would have been a, a nice little radiation source. But um, but so what do you sort of put in there in its stead? Well, what else is going on these days? Let's find something else. How about the hollow earth? People like the hollow earth. And with the internet, I sound like an old man, but with this <laughs> internet thing here, there is a much lower barrier of entry to being exposed to these ideas than there used to be. Um, it used to be if you didn't catch just the right TV show or find just the right book at the library, you wouldn't necessarily have heard of any of these things. But now, you know, depending on what you're looking at on YouTube, the recommended videos that pop up are, you know, any number of different topics. And sometimes it might be something that you never would have looked at otherwise. And so I think people are are exposed to more of these ideas. More people are exposed, exposed to more of these ideas now than they were, you know, 20, 30, um, 50 years ago. So I think you're going to see things like, like the hollow earth popping up in, um, in big budget mainstream action movies. Um, not because there's any sort of agenda, sort of hollow earth agenda, but because it's part of this this palette of things that the audience can be relied upon to recognize in some way. Right. Yeah. Another example I was thinking of is um, uh, I've just finished a book by Ursula Le Guin called the left hand of darkness. And in that it's, it's part of a whole set of books set in the same universe. Um, and in those books, Earth was a was a colony planet from another world called Hain and, and the Hainish sort of, they went out, into the universe and and colonized parts of the galaxy really and um and in one in the book i was reading there's somebody from earth on this other world which was also colonized and he's sort of there in secret to try and see if the planet is willing or ready to to join the sort of federation-esque group of planets that um earth is now in and i was reading this book going this is this book's got some really interesting ideas and if if somebody a ufologist kind of presented the idea that Earth was a colony planet. It it would be hard to sort of be met with with without criticism, wouldn't it? But because it's in a work of fiction, it, that idea is is more accepted. And I, I think fiction can sometimes too often be seen as not real. And the relationship between fiction and the real world, I think, is a is a really interesting one in, in terms of how ideas are transmitted and and how it, it can affect people's concept of the world and and life really yeah i i think that's uh, that's that's very true and and there were there i, mean, I think there were especially in like the the, the 70s you had, you had people like um like uh zechariah sitchin you know talking about you know were humans a slave race created by aliens to mine gold or, or whatever zechariah sitchin was was talking about but but yeah you see these things pop up in fiction um and w- what's great is that unlike somebody writing a book where they're trying to convince the reader that they're correct uh that their ideas about whatever are correct um somebody creating fiction just has to craft a good story and so they're they're a little more free to do more interesting things with uh, with these ideas and and i think that's um it's a really interesting way 
way to do it. I, I recently got done, finally, I can't believe it took me this long, but I watched all of um, the old 70s show Sapphire and Steel Okay. Uh, from the late 70s and early 80s, uh, a British TV show. And uh, there's, there's a lot of things with, with the nature of time and, and, and some folkloric elements that are very similar to what um, to what uh, Jacques Vallée was writing about at the time. And, and you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, this is a, a show where I can't believe they're talking about these ideas. And then you look at when it was made and, and, and the sort of things the authors talked about being interested in. And you're like, oh, this is really the most, you know, sort of sensible storyline they could have come up with. It's like um, like a Doctor Who story about Atlantis in 1972 when everybody was writing books about where was Atlantis really on the island of Crete? And, you know, these things, looking back on them 40 years later, they seem like, wow, I can't believe they wrote about that. But it was part of the culture of the time. And I think um, some of those paranormal things and some of those weird things that we see, um, that, that we see people believing in and investigating, we see them pop up in fiction for the same reason, because it, it's part of this this overall, um, the overall culture of the time. Yeah, I think you're right there. So in terms of the episodes that you've done for your podcast, is there a particular case that, that stands out for you that when you were putting it together, just really, really sort of summed up what you were trying to create with, with your podcast? Um. It, it, it's interesting. The, the ones, the ones that that I that I think are, are just like this is this is the one I, I I really yeah this this one is it. This is what I've what I've been wanting to do. Um, are, are never necessarily the ones that that get the most response uh, from, from people. Um, but one thing, one that um, and honestly isn't really very flying saucery, but I think one that I I can't believe I pulled off as as well as I did. Was was just from last month where I talk about it's it's encounter fifty four on the website mm-hmm. about um, something called alternative three. It was a, a sort of April Fool's hoax TV program in the UK and a book based on it that conspiracy theorists have have glommed onto as you know this is the elite really telling us how they're going to eliminate vast amounts of the population enslave us and move us to their Mars colony. Um, <laughs> It's it's it was a, it was a hoax. It was fiction, but it's been picked up on ever since you know the early 1980s. And uh, there is some flying saucer related stuff in it, but um, it just just the idea of of taking a story and and something that that seems ubiquitous at a certain time, like Alternative Three was in the uh, in in the early 90s as a as a sort of oh my gosh, this is where they told the truth, and sort of tracing that back as well as you can back to its origins as a little April Fool's joke and a paperback book um, that just got blown up all out of proportion. That was that was fun and also a, a little bit frustrating to weed through various layers of what might be true and what might not be true. So I, th- I think that was, um, that that's one where really, that's what I was trying to do with the show um, from the beginning. Uh, there's a, another, um, Back in uh, back in October of last year, I, I did a, a sort of run of episodes about the uh, the Mothman stuff, mm. and that was um, that was fun. Sort of looking at it from different sources, from the original first looking at the original newspaper accounts, then looking at Gray Barker's account, then looking at uh, at John Keel's account and the Mothman prophecies, which was he was there at the time, but the book itself wasn't published until you know, five or six years later. So just looking at the different um, 
ways the story changed and things that were added to the story and that come out over time. I think I think those are, are probably the, the best examples of of sort of the approach that I try to take. Great. So if someone asked you what you thought Mothman was, would you what would you say? It was a it was a it was a it was a sandhill crane or a giant owl. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I uh, I think I uh, if I had to if I had to guess at a at a what a my my favorite and I, my favorite fantastical explanation for it is that it's some aspect of of the earth or the environment itself hmm. that took a form to warn people off for whatever reason it did. Um, I, I don't think it was necessarily some kind of cryptid, um, but I don't think it was a ghost. I like the idea that it was some sort of earth energy that coalesced and, um, and, and made an appearance, but it, you know, these sightings took place in the, the Mothman stuff took place in the middle of a bunch of UFO weirdness too. So, um, so who knows, maybe people in the area were dosed with some kind of, uh, some kind of psychedelic agent that made them see things. I think Mothman is one of those things where there's no one good explanation for it. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's survived so well. That and because it's got a marketable sort of image that you can put with it. It's got this sort of, you know, you have the picture of the Mothman, but then the deeper you look into it, there's no end to the weirdness that surrounds the entire Mothman thing. There were contactees, a, a, a guy named... Um, Woodrow Derenberger had a contactee experience tied up with the whole the whole time and place as well. It had everything from flying saucers to strange creatures. Um, it uh, it literally defies categorization. Yeah, I mean I, you're absolutely right. It's just it's such a such an odd period of time in in that area. I just it, like you like you just said it had, it has everything, and it's it's hard to put your finger on what was going on because you think you've you think you almost maybe work, not worked it out, but you, you feel like you have an idea that might kind of include everything, and then but there'll always be an outline, and then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, but but yeah, I mean, all the stuff with injured cold, just it's fascinating. Yeah, I think it'll keep people guessing for a long time, forever, probably. I think it will, and I, I think Point Pleasant that the town has has finally begun to embrace it a little bit more. Mm. Um, I was there. A couple of years ago, and I was I was talking to somebody in the the museum, and she was telling me that that you know ten twenty years before there there was a a huge among the locals a, a real desire not to let Point Pleasant become the Mothman town, and to not have it become some sort of tourist trap thing. But I, I think you know as as a new generation sort of comes in, they realize you know for better or worse that you know nothing against the good people of Point Pleasant or, or Gallipolis, Ohio, across the river. There's not much else happening in that town. So if they could, you know, gin up some business by being the Mothman town, hey, go for it. Um, but uh, it, it's definitely one of those things that there is enough weirdness there that people will be investigating it for forever. But it's accessible enough that you can do a documentary or a, a newspaper article and get people hooked. So it, it's it, it really is sort of the, the the perfect constellation of of paranormal fun, I guess, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, Aaron, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me on.
So if people want to find out more about you um, and your podcast and your books, how best do they do that? Uh, best thing to do is to go to saucerlife.com. Uh, it's all one word, saucerlife. Um, on Twitter at saucerlife as well, Twitter and Instagram uh, at saucerlife. And they can find all the episodes there on the website, um, links to books and things. Um, you can also find the po- just the podcast in any place where you find podcasts from iTunes to Spotify to Google Play to wherever else you find podcasts. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put a link to your podcast in the show notes. Thank you. Uh, You're very welcome. Thank you again, Aaron. No problem. Thank you. It's interesting to note that in that radio interview with Kenneth Arnold, he describes his initial observation of the objects he saw as looking like geese and speculated they might be some other sort of aircraft. The term flying saucer was an invention of the press, and as we can testify over 70 years later, it is still as recognisable today as it ever was. The effect on popular culture cannot be underestimated, and as Aaron's podcast shows, after 1947, there was definitely an increase in interest in flying saucers, as well as encounters with these craft and their occupants. Thanks again to Aaron. He was a great guest, and you should definitely check out his books and the Source of Life podcast if you enjoyed this episode, which I'm guessing you have if you've gone this far. <laughs> I'd also like to thank Wendy Connors, who found and preserved the Kenneth Arnold radio interview sound clip you heard earlier in the episode. I'll put a link to the full clip in the show notes, and there'll also be a link to the Source of Life podcast. Fittingly, I'm going to end this episode with a song from 1947 by the Buchanan Brothers called When You See Those Flying Saucers. It was inspired by the Kenneth Arnold sighting and has some really wonderful lyrics, one of which I want to read to you. Many people think the saucers might be someone's foolish dream, or maybe they were sent down here from Mars. If you'll just stop and think, you'd realise just what it means. They're more than atom bombs or falling stars. If you'd like to contact me at Sphere HQ about this episode, or with any ideas for future subjects or suggestions for guests, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Stitcher. Likes, ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. You better pray to the Lord when you see those flying saucers. It may be the coming of the judgment day. It's a sign there's no doubt of the trouble that's about.
maybe they were sent down here from Mars. If you just stop and think, you'd realize just what it means. They're more than atom bombs or falling stars. And though the war may be true, there's unrest and trouble brewing, and those flying saucers may be just a sign that if peace doesn't come, it will be the end of some. So repent today, we're running out of time. When you see a saucer. Better pray.